And then when you're ready, just sit comfortably. So it's really lovely to be here uh, with all of you. And um, I wanted to spend a little bit of time before we head into silence, just offering a kind of uh, a collage of different uh, perspectives for approaching this practice, which for some of you is brand new. Uh, and for more than half of you, uh, is something that you've uh, explored at least once in terms of a retreat setting, uh, judging by the applications that I, I read uh, over dinner. The world that we're living in is so complex, and increasingly it seems to be getting faster and faster. Technology is incredible. Uh, it's uh, been able to connect people, and it's been able to create incredible uh, medical advances, and uh, the list goes on. And at the same time, technology has caused, for most of us, information overload. And though sometimes Conceptually, it feels like we're more connected than ever. We can also now feel more alienated than ever and without a doubt, uh, distracted. The mind that you use to scroll emails is not the same mental state that you use to communicate with people you love. I find regularly that I can't even switch easily anymore from reading emails to reading a novel. I actually have to stop and, and uh, find a different mental state to be able to sit and uh, read fiction, which is a different way of using my mind for reading uh, emails or texts. And uh, that's not the same world that the Buddha lived in. The Buddha didn't know about uh, the molecular base of disease, he didn't even know about the printing press. And not only that, the Buddha lived in a cosmological universe that we don't have anymore. The Buddha believed that if you drilled a hole in land, you would reach water, which meant that the earth floated on water. So my interest is in how to translate these wisdom teachings which as the years go by, I find deeper and deeper uh, into contemporary culture in a way that's not just useful in our own personal lives, but can really affect change at a social and relational level. just realized we're not in Toronto. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, 
So my interest this weekend is uh, to draw on the wealth of these really deep traditions that I've been studying my whole life uh, and translate them in a way that will allow this practice to be embodied and secondly will inspire you uh, to put these practices to work in the world of economics, in the world of ecology, in the worlds of relationship, in your livelihood, and also in your own heart, which is suffering under the weight of distraction, stress, and also you know, at one time we could turn to religion to get a really good story about how everything's supposed to go. Where and how you'll be reborn. Uh, what priest you should have a relationship with. And those times seem to have been replaced by uh, science. Everybody's a scientist now. If you're not into neuroscience, you're not cool, it seems, these days. If you put mindfulness and neuroscience together, you will attract money, <laughs> it seems. Or a publishing deal, anyways. But we're also learning from science that uh, science has also been on the same shaky metaphysical ground that religion has been. And now science is really undergoing a revolution because we realize that we're not just objective watchers. That everything we look at, we affect. Just like when a meditator hears the instruction, notice your breathing, as soon as you notice your breathing, you change it. And so uh, it's hard to know what to believe in, both because we're distracted and also in this era, there are so many dis stories and there's so, many, so much distrust of big stories. It's hard to know what to have faith in. And then you combine that with a little bit of low self-esteem which seems rampant in the culture, and a lot of consumerism, and you have a recipe for a society that's in trouble. We need elders who are not caught in the narrative of consumerism and distraction. And we also need young people who are not caught in the narrative of consumerism and distraction. We all talk about leaving a good earth for young people, but we also need to leave really good young people for the earth. So I like to think of sitting meditation as embodied rebellion. And it's standing up against the forces in your own mind 
but also the cultural forces that keep us so busy and so distracted that we forget about what's important and we forget about what's really nourishing and then we make choices that give us false forms of nourishment or we control our lives in a way where we think everything's managed but really we're just moving stuff around up here and we're not really deeply in our lives there's a wonderful story about um, in the Mahayana tradition about uh, Manjushri who uh, met with um, a student named Sudana. This is from a sutra called the Avatamsaka Sutra, or the Flower Garland Sutra. And Sudana comes to Manjushri and says, how do I wake up? Has anybody had this question? Where you realize you're asleep, and then you say, but how do I really w- wake up? And Manjushri uh, says, you know, go meet people. Go meet people. There's a wonderful composer I love named John Cage. And his motto was, uh, everybody should spend time with strangers. More time with strangers. <laughs> so this is like the same piece of advice. Go, go meet people. So he goes uh, to meet uh, 57 people. He meets like a teacher, a priest, uh, a lay person, a mother, a grandmother, a fisherman, the captain of a boat, um, a prostitute. Uh, there's actually scholars, have, there, there really is a debate in academia about how much time he spent with this prostitute. <laughs> I found a whole article about this. Um, and see what you can learn. So anyways, he comes back. And uh, what I love about these old stories, you know, there's there's always a point in these old Buddhist stories where the teacher sends the student out to go find something. But they never say how long. Like, did he go for nine years? Or was it like a day at the mall, you know, talking to people? (laughs) Anyways, so um, Sudana comes back to Manjushri uh, and and says, um, "I, I still... I still don't know. How do, how do I wake up? I'm really suffering. Has anybody felt this before? Mm-hmm. You go, you ask people, you know, still you don't know. So Manjushri says, go find me something that isn't medicine. So he goes off. Again, they don't tell you how long. Like, did he go for two years? Imagine if you just went for a week and you were constantly saying to yourself, as if your whole life depended on it, what's not medicine? That's a good koan to work with, good mantra. What's not medicine? And he comes back, to Manjushri and says, I've looked everywhere and I can't find anything that's not medicine. My intention is that on Sunday when you live here, you'll have some insight into this. You can look at your loneliness 
and see how it's healing. Or maybe you can look at the frustration of not getting what you want. In mild forms and in major forms. Or the experience of being separated from what you love. It's medicine. It's your life. It's my life. We're in bodies and we're all in relationships. You can't control that. You ever tried to control your body? Or your parents? Have you ever tried controlling a teenager? So everything we encounter can be medicine. Even your resistance to practice this weekend can be medicine. There should always be a little bit of resistance in your meditation practice. Because then you know it's working. Because there's always resistance to change. So there's always going to be a little resistance right around the corner, even if you're in a good phase right now. There's a Zen teacher named Shinra Suzuki who always said, uh, it's really important to have problems. (laughs) (laughs) Or you don't have anything to practice with. I had a teacher uh, uh, when I first started practicing named Patabi Joyce, and he said to me once, uh, it's really good that you were not born into a heaven realm. <laughs> because otherwise you'd have nothing to practice with. Everything can be medicine. Everything can be healing. So anyways... Uh, Sudana comes back to Manjushri and says, I can't find anything that isn't medicine. Which is, that's a big transformation right there. From someone who was saying earlier, I'm really suffering. How do I wake up? I say, I can't, everything's medicine. I can't find anything that isn't medicine. And so, uh, as a teacher is supposed to do, he pushes him a little further. And Manjushri then says to Sudana, Bring me something that is medicine. And immediately Sudana picked up a blade of grass. And I, this is my favorite part of the story because it's spontaneous. Bring me something that isn't, they're sitting on the ground. Bring me something that's medicine. And he just looks and picks up the first thing he can find. In your meditation practice, Whatever is showing up, you can be intimate with that. Not running away, not beating yourself up, not comparing it to the past. You didn't get the body your mother wanted for you. You didn't get the husband or the wife 
you were supposed to get. Or you got them, but they changed. You didn't change, but they changed. <laughs> because we're living at a time where there's so much uh, information and so much stress, uh, we can forget sometimes that what's healing is right here in this moment and only in this moment. And when you sit, that is eternity, embedded in a moment of time. You can only experience your life in this moment of time. Not getting ahead, not going back. Right here. And when you're sitting, and you're sitting in an embodied way, your past is embodied. So you might be visited by an old ache from an old injury. Or your breath may go down into a knee or a sacrum or your pelvic floor and, and bring up an emotion that you, could, you didn't even expect. And you can also be intimate with that. The past as it's showing up in the present. And that's the heart of this practice, right there. And this is how we wake up, and this is how we cultivate compassion, which is the goal of this practice. We learn how to sit still and soothe ourselves for those people that have a hard time soothing themselves. Sometimes I think meditation is like reparenting. When you're young and you're alone and your mother or your father weren't able to meet your needs, then you developed very quickly a mechanisms to take care of yourself. Psychology researchers uh, call this uh, uh, feeling or dealing. There's all kinds of studies where they have a baby, or a young person rather, in a room, at different ages, like one, two, three, four, and, and, and the, the caregiver leaves the room and doesn't come back for a while. And some people uh, feel so much that they're overwhelmed and they can't do anything. They're just totally overwhelmed. And the, and the researchers call this a feeling not dealing. So much feeling they can't take action to take care of themselves. And some people, they go the other way and they just start trying to figure out what to do, but they actually are numb. Those are two extremes. And I could talk more about this, but that's for another talk. But the reason why I mention this is because I see in meditation <coughs> practice, in basic mindfulness practice, 
that, you know, part of this practice is also uh, at a really deep level uh, learning how to be with what is in a way that's also healing these deep kind of relational um, patterns that were set down when we were small. Where certain emotions arose and we didn't have the tools or we didn't see the tools modeled in our environment to work with them. And now we're going to learn how to breathe with them. It's about time. Because otherwise we're expecting everyone else to fix it for us. Does this make sense a little bit? So there's the personal level of practice where there's suffering and you're going to attend to how you're suffering and you're going to work with it. And then at the same time, there's um, the transpersonal dimension of this practice, which is that we're learning how to practice compassion wherever there's suffering. And for the first years of practice, usually it's just my suffering. How am I going to bring healing and how am I going to bring my breath to the sadness I feel, to the relationships that haven't worked out, to the job I've left, or the job that's left me, or to anxiety or sadness or numbness. But then, you know, what happens is, uh, especially when we sit with other people, we see, wow, they're suffering too. (laughs) (laughs) And then, compassion gets fired up. Because instead of bringing compassion to my pain, we bring it to the pain to the suffering, capital S suffering, which is that we see our lives in a web of which we're just a part. And we want to work to heal that web. And it's not just about us, but it includes us. And that's the heart of this practice. And we call this insight meditation. The word insight comes from a Sanskrit root. Uh, Vipashyana. Pasha is an I, and V is an intensifier. It means to go in. And traditionally that word was used, twinned with another word, anupashana. They were used together. Uh, vipassana means to go to go in and really see what's there. And anupassana means, and then when you're looking, to go on looking. It means to look, and then to look again. And then to look again. And then to look again. And every time you look, it's different. And it takes a lot of courage. Because most of the time we look and we're like, oh yeah, that's that thing. I don't want to look at that. You know? 
so you put it like like what's been done over here, you know. You take the thing you don't want to look at and you put it in the cupboard. And no, you don't just put it in the cupboard, then you hang like a beautiful mandala in front of the cupboard. And then you take your altar or whatever you have and you set it up in front of the mandala. So like just everything's really beautiful over there. And then you start to practice in front of your altar. And then the altar, the cupboard starts leaking. And you say to yourself, oh, the practice is not working. Because everything's falling out and leaking. I didn't do a good job. I have to get a nail gun. Or another husband. But then I think if you're held in this form and you start to trust in it because you see that shopping is not going to solve this, then you start to see that the leaking is the practice. You sit, you get calm, you get concentrated, your defenses start to soften, and then things start leaking out. But you don't work with them the way you work with it in your busy day-to-day analytical life. And this weekend we're going to explore how to work with it. So that uh, everything can be medicine. And I promise you on Sunday, whether this was a good retreat or a bad retreat, your face will look different. You'll look more like you. We need more people. More human beings. People who are defeated, people who are worried, People who can be sad and not add more sadness on top of their sadness. People who can be joyful and it doesn't turn into mania. We need this so much. So the last thing I want to say tonight is to remind you that when you're practicing, it's not just for you. You sit breath by breath by breath, your stress will calm down. It will. If your technique really sucks, and I'm talking or Grant's leading and you're like not even listening, and you're just thinking about um, what you're going to cook on Monday when you get home, or you're making lists. A lot of people make lists. Uh, Even if you're doing that, and you sit and you don't listen to the instructions at all, you will be less stressed on uh, Sunday. I promise.
And if you read science uh, journals now, they say that if you do mindfulness practice, uh, you will have stress reduction. So it's true. Because the scientists all say it's true. And they're throwing a lot of money at this. I have a friend at Brown University. She has her own fMRI machine just to study meditators. It's not just an fMRI machine. It's an fMRI machine with the screen in the inside of the machine. So she gets meditators to come and sit down in the MRI machine and and the screen's inside, so they watch what their own brain is doing while they're meditating. So she has all these people coming. Uh, Many of them are my friends who, who are really good at concentration. She says, okay, well, let's see. And she puts them in the machine. And they work with the technique um, as they're watching their own brain until they can get the default motor network or whatever they're looking at to, to cool down. It's pretty cool. But you know what? Nothing's that good. <laughs> but what I'm getting at is the purpose of mindfulness practice is not stress reduction. The purpose of mindfulness practice is so you can wake up to your life, to a culture that's really troubled, so that you can uh, practice forgiveness, so that you can practice generosity, so that you can uh, feel joy. And so you can do all of this in an embodied way. So what interests me is embodied mindfulness practice. That's a tool for peacemaking. Making peace in our own hearts. Because all of us have conflict that can't be resolved. Couldn't be any other way. All of us have uh, troubles in relationship that we can't explain. And it's exhausting trying to get the final story. It's expensive, too, if you're doing that with someone lying on their couch. And maybe trying to find the great story that will explain everything. isn't the right track. Maybe we've been asking the wrong question. So I encourage you over the next few days to see how everything that shows up is medicine. And if the whole world is medicine, then what is the self? Are you separate from medicine? Everything can be healing. 
And we're going to explore some tools, really simple tools, that can allow us to see this and to feel it and to embody it. When you come into the room, be mindful of how you come in and sit down. When you sit, sit really still. Especially if you're in the front row. Because <laughs> if you're in the front row, you're sitting for the people behind you. I was on a retreat once uh, with my teacher, and uh, this old guy came. You know some people who are really old, and you, like, you can't tell if they're 60 or 90? Do you know what I'm talking about? Like turtles, you know, sometimes you can't tell, like, are they 100 or 400? <laughs> he like, had that kind of a face. Like, you just couldn't tell what his age was. Anyways, uh, he was dying. He had cancer. And uh, he was really ill. And uh, he, he came to the retreat center and said, I want to sit uh, uh, just for one session during the retreat. He lived not far from the retreat center, rurally. And uh, so uh, Roshi said, uh, yeah, it's okay if he comes in and sits for a session. So he sat you know, first thing in the morning, really, really early. And then uh, we did walking meditation, and then we came back. And he was sitting there. Again, oh, he has some enthusiasm, you know. Well, the retreat went on for, you know, eight or ten days, however long it was. And he sat the whole retreat. (laughs) Sometimes I thought, oh, he's just going to get a free retreat. (laughs) (laughs) At the end of the retreat, uh, we sat in a big circle, uh, which we'll do in this retreat also. We shared, you know, someone said to him, oh, you were just supposed to stay for one session. How come you sat uh, the whole retreat? And he said, oh, when I sat down, there was this young kid sitting next to me who was so uh, fidgety. So I said to myself, I'm just going to sit beside him until he gets calm. (laughs) And he sat there the whole retreat. And that was so inspiring to me. He didn't sit there because he was trying to get something. He sat there because he thought, if I just sit here beside this one person, and for sure it wasn't comfortable for him to sit. If I just sit there for this kid, that's worth it. So you're sitting for the person beside you also. The more you can put that energy, virya, more that enthusiasm into your sitting, the more it will benefit you and also the people around you. Because we're all 40 of us holding this space together. And then when you let your practice get kind of sloppy and you space out, you know, like this kind of thing. (laughs) (laughs) Or for some people it's more like, they get really like... um, Then that energy gets picked up by the people beside you. And this is the key thing about the formality of sitting and walking and eating is how to stick with the form 
even when it's hard and even when you have resistance and at the same time to completely be yourself. You say completely still because that's the form. Even when it's really, really hard, you stay with it. And you trust that the form can hold you in it. Hundreds and thousands of people who've taken up this posture. But then, it's not stiff. You're in it, and you're completely yourself. And if you do this, you will be more beautiful on Sunday. I used to say that as a joke, like, the more you sit, the more you'll get beautiful. But actually, it's true. <laughs> it's really true. On Sunday, your face will be so beautiful. Because you're going to be yourself. You don't have to be special on the retreat. Whatever you encounter is medicine, and that's you. It's not separate from you. If you feel like you're feeling something that's not medicine, it's because it's too far away. It's not close enough yet. You're holding yourself back. So, this is the practice that we're going to explore together. Thank you for listening. Um, I want to take some time for a few minutes to see if there are any questions, comments, uh, any uh, worries. And then we'll have a very short period of silence, and then we'll go to bed. So are there any questions or comments uh, before we go into silence for a few days. <laughs>